This is The Rest is PR with Lyle Fulton and Jackie Vores. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Rest is PR. My name, as it will always be, barring incident, is Lyle Fulton. And I am joined, as I hope I always will be, by the wonderful Jackie Vores. Jackie, how are you this fine Friday morning? So it's Friday still. But it's like slightly alternative time. How are you doing? How has your week been? My week has been interesting. I, you know how we have all these sort of bank holidays. Everything is sort of shrunk into four days. So while everybody gets really excited about bank holidays, I'm and, and me too, because I do love a holiday. Don't tell that staff because he gets really angry about bank holidays because he's the Grinch when it comes to these things. But I always end up sort of working the hours that I would have worked on that Monday anyway. Everything sort of gets just squashed and concertinaed into a four-day week. And I don't know whether I could handle four-day weeks. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm the same. I think, But the thing is, is that I kind of tend to run out of time. Like, I always run out of time. I put an agenda down on my phone. And I drive my colleagues crazy, actually, because they, they're like, why is your agenda on your phone? Why is it not, like, visible to me? And I'm like, well, it's because I'm squashing everything. You're so right. And so like sort of a, a very small, minute amount of days. Um, and I don't for those know. listeners who are not from the UK, we've got three Mondays off this month of May. So it's, you know, it's really truncated those three weeks of May yeah. into four-day working weeks, which for me are quite, you know, Fulsome. <laughs> <laughs> Fulsome's a fantastic word, a fantastic use of the word fulsome, uh, which we will include a description of, listeners, in the episode <laughs> description, a uh, definition, rather, of the word fulsome. But uh, something that is very fulsome, wholesome, in fact, nice little segue, as ever, from myself, is that this week, listeners, <laughs> if you're watching the video, you will be able to see me grinning. And if you're listening, I hope you'll be able to hear me grinning in my voice. We're joined by a very special guest this week, listeners. Episode 41 of the podcast. This week, after the incredible Andrew last week from Home House, we are joined by the equally incredible Scott Fulton, my dad. My dad is on the podcast, listeners. It's finally happened. He's here. He's arrived. After a bit of a full start when he tried to sign on from uh, sign on log on uh, from from Naples uh, in Italy, he's now back here in Bedfordshire. And uh, welcome, Dad. How are you this fine Friday morning? How are you doing? Uh, I, I, thank you, Lyle. I, I'm I'm very well. I'm very well. I mean, I, I was taken uh, with with Jackie's introduction, which was great uh, about the, the the problems of so many bank holidays in one month. I'm retired. <laughs> Well, we're going to get all the stuff out of bank holidays. <laughs> Maybe we could have a coronation every other week. I was rather, I was rather keen on it last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, look forward, listeners, by the way, to use of the word stuff in uh, place of other words, uh, because my dad is, uh, is is under the brief not to swear. Uh, we'll, we'll attempt to, I'm sure, several times. I do drop the, the odd S bomb. <laughs> well, I, I, you say that because you're an eloquent and, and educated person, Jackie. I know at least 876 words. And I still prefer the word stuff. <laughs> I know at least. Hey, here we are. We're getting a bit of a flavour here, listeners. We're getting a bit of a flavour. You probably hear as well the similarity 
in our delivery, which I'm excited to kind of play with in terms of dynamics. But dad, welcome. Scott, welcome. I don't know how we're going to, I don't know how we're going to wrangle. Dad. dad, dad works. Dad works. Dad, <laughs> it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. As we do with all of our guests, and I think it's important that, uh, that it's treated thusly, as we do with all of our guests. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, just about your career so far? You know, you're on the podcast because you've worked in PR in your life. But I think as I mentioned in the document I sent across to you, and as I think, I, I'm sure I speak for children across the land as of right now i really don't know what you do um so uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you've done in your past career and what you're up to now because you're kind of retired but you're kind of not is that right yes thank you lyle um i will go with your um your first name because obviously son seems a little you know religious to be perfectly honest but uh, okay what about my career i am a trained economist which i think at this point in time makes me one of the least popular people in the United Kingdom, notwithstanding my other habits and um, and behaviour. I then became what was called a, um, a stockbroking analyst uh, in the late 1980s. For those of you listening in colour, that was last century. We went from stockbroking analyst to investment banking analyst when the spam, sorry, the Americans turned up in the 1990s. And at the end of the uh, the century, I uh, I was working at a, at a bank, I think you might have heard of, called ABN AMRO, which went spectacularly bang in 2008, 2009. Nothing to do with me. I also worked at Merrill Lynch and the Royal Bank of Scotland, amongst other things, and, and they're no longer around. And that had nothing to do with me either. <laughs> but I, I then saw the light, um, or indeed the very large redundancy check, and went into public relations which at the time had a very symbiotic relationship between the investment banking community, which is known as the sell side, which we'll come on to. Uh, And so I walked into um, one of London's, at that point, finest financial PR uh, companies called Financial Dynamics. And I joined them in 1999-2000. And from that point, uh, my career in communications evolved rather than uh, being a a sort of an analyst and and someone who spends most of their time with spreadsheets. Uh, Thereafter, I've I've been both in agency and in-house. In-house was uh, within the retirement space, which is now, you know, very uh, topical given my current situation. I worked on a couple of other in-house places and did some work in, uh, in investor relations, which has become my thing since the financial crisis. Again, not my fault. And uh, in terms of investor relations, I, I've worked with a number of agencies, and a number of companies. What I currently do um, is I work with a listed company in London. It's on the alternative investment market. And we are trying, uh, we, no, we are not trying, we are evolving and eventually succeeding in bringing a new technology from South Korea into Europe which converts waste plastic into its component parts, being fuel oil and naphtha, which is the most difficult word to spell. Is it N-A-P-T-H-A? Because that's what it sounds like. Yes, you, phonetically, you're absolutely right. But there's, a, there's, a, there's an erroneous H in it. It's N-A-P-H-T-H-A. I know, right? And I've been blaming the Greeks for about the last six months for this. Um, they were responsible for the financial crisis, by the way, and spelling. <laughs> there we go. Right. There's lots to unpick here. I mean, I think There's we're going to call this episode. Mountains to unpick there. <laughs> you want to start, or shall I? I think you should go, actually, Jackie. I think you should okay. go. Yeah, why not crack on? So I'm fascinated by that sort of leap that you took from analyst to PR, because in my small poo bear brain, being an analyst and having those sort of very honed skills is quite a different set of skills to 
being a communicator or would you disagree I, I, I often disagree, Jackie. Um, but I mean, obviously, no, you, you, you are right in, in a sense, because necessarily where we are now, investment analysts are, are kept in dark rooms, fed, you know, quinoa, I think that's how you pronounce it, and, and, and told to spend, you know, told, told to reinvent the wheel. But when I started, which was pre-Big Bang, um, and again, as I was listening, uh, in 1986, the government at the time, which was the, that of Margaret Thatcher and the Conservatives, deregulated the London stock market. And as a function of which they allowed oiks like me into it to become, you know, before that, it was typically the, pur- the purview of the second sons of the landed gentry. Was, you yeah. very, o- very often hear of a Friday evening, you know, where, where are you going? I've got a small place in the country. Oh, really? Where's that? It's called Gloucestershire. Um <laughs> But in that, um, you know, my family doesn't own half of a county. You know, it was very much a um, an egalitarian time. But the science of investment analysis was very much in its infancy. And what it attracted was sort of spotty grammar school boys, typically boys, who could use, at that time it was Lotus 1, 2, 3. It became obviously Excel dominated, but effectively use a spreadsheet and, and parse a sentence. We were journalists, and I think to a very great extent, what I did and, and the way that I, I developed over you know the sort of 12 years I did it was very much like financial journalists now. Right. And investig- we were more invested. We thought of ourselves as Woodward and Bernstein. I was the tall one. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman, eat my shorts. Um, but we were very much investigative journalists. We were always looking for, and it was at a time when, very much like today, when when companies in London particularly, but also in New York and in other markets, were, were trying to take the mick. So, for example, I joined UBS in the early to mid-90s when it, was, when it owned a broker in London called Phillips & Drew. And the reason it had owned Phillips & Drew was because Phillips & Drew had, had, had done something for the benefit of the tapes a little bit off regulation in a company called Blue Arrow which is a recruitment company. And to that extent, you know, we had a lot of different corporate issues or maybe crises where the analysts were seen as people who were supposed to go and find them and make sure that your pension fund didn't invest in them. Oh, wow. So really, I'm just thinking about some of the, our previous guests. Hmm. So there's the, um, we've got Eric, who basically does that job. Yeah, he- Absolutely. And he's moved into commentating on the industry and providing, obviously, a podcast with other colleagues that tell everybody about investments in the games industry. So I'm starting to see some real parallels with people working in analysis and, and being kind of like an investigative journalist. And then I see, now I can see the very natural hop over to... PR because journalists often make that move over. Uh, yeah, you know, I work, 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 sorry. And gamekeeper. Mm. Journalists often move over to PR because I suppose you understand that, therefore, what the aims of those companies should be to build their reputations and protect their reputations and protect ultimately the organizations. Yeah, so, very much. But I mean, to that point, I mean, so, I mean, I worked with Jeff Randall, who came out of the Sunday Times, and he went to Financial Dynamics. I know Jeff, yeah. Yeah, and, and a whole host of other journalists. And there was a sort of, one, one time, late 90s, early noughties, there was this one-way traffic from News International into the financial PR agencies. And the reason they did that um, at the time, because I sat in one of the interviews, was that the financial PR, or the PR industry as a, as a whole, 
were recruiting these people because they knew how the editorial function worked, which I think plays to something you might want to talk about later on, which is that we have no, we no longer have an editorial function because everybody has a view and nobody, nobody edits it. So true. It's so true. We could, we could, going about that for ages it's one of my biggest bugbears is that money has actually seeped out of media because of the rise of self-publishing and all sorts of different content vehicles and so there isn't really that infrastructure anymore that values journalism no and i think that and what what is interesting to me is that you're seeing journalists with a certain uh, yen for the investigation go into analysis We've actually got a, a sort of a um, true a circle. Of, true circle, yes. And what's also interesting is, I mean, t- to me certainly, is that a lot of my contemporaries have gone into investor relations. They're no longer those well, investigative I'm analysts. That for li- listeners and and watchers, yeah. What, what is your definition of investor relations? Sure. So um, I would use an analogy or a comparison, if I if I may. Um, you will know uh, the corporate comms director or the corporate comms manager who is in charge of you know. Everything the company or, or the uh, the business is putting into the market, and then sort of making sure that's reflected accurately in a variety of different platforms. The investor relations director or manager does exactly the same thing, but to a different audience. And that that different audience is, is broken down into three main components. Two of what well, they're all interrelated, but principally you're communicating with your shareholders. Right. Um, and we can spend a lot of time talking about shareholders, but shareholders fall into pretty much three main groups. The first of which are pension funds, who obviously manage all of our money uh, on this call and indeed elsewhere. They are long-term investors. Um, so Lyle is um, 42, and obviously he's going to be retiring in about you know 18 to 19 years. Okay, right. I, I'm not good with numbers. I'm an economist. Uh, you were the, deliberately not good with numbers there, though. My, my, can I posit that? You were very <laughs> deliberately not good with numbers there. Just want to put that you know, out. Every, you know what, Jackie? Everybody's a critic. <laughs> Everybody's a critic. But the, the, the issue with I mean, the issue with pension fund management is it's long-term. You start investing in a pension as an as an individual when you're, say, 21, you've graduated, et cetera. And in, in the United Kingdom, you don't get access to that money until you're 55. And prior to George Osborne's pension freedom, when we were all allowed to go out and buy a Lamborghini with our pensions, um, you couldn't really get access to it till you were 60, 65. So it's very long-term. You're under client as a pension fund manager uh, you don't have to access your clients they're paying into you and they don't get the cash for in some cases decades so it's very it's very passive money it's huge by the way i mean the uk pension fund industry is the second largest in the world the numbers are extraordinary and pension fund money pretty much dwarfs every other pool of money in the investment market. And again, it's very long-term. To a very great extent, it's passive. It's not a hedge fund. Okay, But then secondly, you have these more active, shorter-term, much more aggressive funds, which typically are hedge funds, um, but there can be other active managers who are not necessarily directly managing pension fund money, but they are clients of pension funds when the pension fund manager has just had enough on a Wednesday and wants to go and have some fun on Thursday, so he puts some money into a hedge fund. And then, poof, there goes a the market. But the hedge fund, et cetera, um, market is more active. And then finally, what probably links them all is the media and the investment banking industry because they are commentators. And I think what I've seen over my career has been um, a move from passive both in terms of that fund management side of things and the media, to more active. So you have more activity and more active strategies in fund management, but you have more active 
uh, activity and active strategies within the media and investment banking. You'll have journalists who go after a company. You have analysts who go after companies all the time. I won't name any names, but I know the analyst who took down Purple Bricks. Right. And, uh, I mean, anybody with access to that famous text-based search engine can find out who he is. And, and Lyle knows who he is, to be fair, and has spoken to him a number of times. Yeah. Uh, and, and he is a friend of mine. Um, but he was passionate about Purple Bricks not being a great company. I think I'm all right in saying that on the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he spent a lot of his time, and he worked for very, very sizable and high-profile investment banks, um, and he spent a lot of his time, you know, saying that to people. And as of this week, Purple Bricks have effectively announced, I mean, I think I'm pausing, and I'm, I'm again, slander libel, but they've said that they, they're in, they may be in receipt of a bid for the company, which bid is below the current share price. And the current share price, this stock having traded over 100 pence at one stage, the current share price is less than 6p. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, the, the, so we have more activism, <laughs> I think, and I think that's a theme that I detect universally. So um, really, interestingly, the role of somebody working in investor relations as opposed to public relations is to communicate the messages of their clients effectively to those three stakeholder groups, which are the pension for the large pension funds, the other types of funds. And the media. And to if you were Purple Bricks Investor Relations PR, you'd be trying to work out a way to communicate to that analyst all the good things that Purple Bricks did as well to maybe hopefully balance out his opinion and his judgment of that organization. No, exactly right. So, so, so really it's quite a stressful. I would find being sort of responsible. I mean, I find being responsible for companies in PR in itself quite stressful, but to be working directly in the sort of the show me the money to be really affecting a company's bottom line which is its value it's quite a powerful well, job yes isn't it? yes and no i mean obviously i don't want to big myself up much though i am tempted to and prompt prone to do but the issue is it's a diffuse supply chain for the information it's a diffuse or diverse audience so to a very great extent directors of IR, managers of IR, are the messenger. You're not at the coalface. I mean, typically, investor relations people, directors, etc., report to the finance director and not to the CEO. And not to the comms people? No, it very much. There's a, there's a, a fundamental dichotomy there because um, comms is seen as Fluff? sort of... Well, no, no, not at all. It's more subjective. It's, it, put it this way. It, public relations is seen as positioning the brand, the brand elements, the brand strategy what the company is all about qualitatively. Right. And IR is about what you manage to produce financially and facts. what you're going to do about that. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I saw it very much as like my marriage, which and I, I apologise to my son for this, is over. Oh, here we go. Here we go, Gibbs. Well, it's, it, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, we're not going to get into this. We're not, we're not going on the couch here. So, I mean, I, 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 for, for reasons that need not detain us, I mean, to be fair, right, some drink was involved. But Lyle's mother and I got divorced, I, I think, about 15 years ago. I have memory issues, so most of this is rubbish anyway. But, I mean, we, we, got, we got divorced. And, and You're lucky appear- you have memory issues, by the sounds of it, currently. We still have memory issues. I know. Xanax, mate. Mm, only way to fly. The um, but we we got divorced anyway. Da, 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 da. But the, the point is that we had a relationship. No, we still have a relationship. Let's put it this way: she's currently in, in, existing in the house in which I'm broadcasting from this morning. Um, 
but my wife, Lyle's mother, and I think this is redolent of a lot of relationships out there, she looks after the money. Right. Right. She looks after, you know, the nuts and bolts of the relationship. And I always used to say to people, this is probably why we got divorced, I, I go out and make the money and she just spends it. <laughs> God help me. I don't know why Habitat's gone bust. The bloody woman spends a fortune <laughs> in there. But to a very great extent, I was about all about the brand. And I was about presenting the sort of the combination, right? Right. Um, and, and it's probably why Lyle the sub. I mean, one of my sons has changed his surname, literally, because I was that bad at presenting the brand. But, um, <laughs> But, but the point is that that's, they're, they're, that's, that's straight straight facts as well. That that's actually that's, true. No, I, that's one hundred percent true. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> but my point is that in any relationship, and I do think that you know, sort of commercial or corporate comms and investor relations is very much like a marriage. Yeah. Where you have the brand and very promotional. You know, the glasses. Let me put it another way. I've always thought of PR, corporate comms, etc., as the glass is half full, and I are the glass is half empty, or in some cases, completely empty. Um, because the minute one starts talking about money, and I mean, I, I note for for example this morning that um, the Hut Group (THG) yeah. has made an announcement that it's it ceased talking to the private equity fund that was looking to buy it, which is Apollo. I don't know why these really aggressive hedge funds always have Greek gods in their titles. <laughs> There's a broker out there called Zeus. <laughs> I stuff you not. <laughs> All right. You know, I mean, it used to be like we had Phillips and Drew, Merrill Lynch. I mean, AB and AMRO, that's just okay. You just throw up some letters in the air and, you know, see what happens at the end. But now, now we have Zeus. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for there's going to be a broker out there called Thor. Maybe the mighty Thor. No, that's that's Daft's dad, the mighty Thor. <laughs> so, and listeners will know because Daft Shellstrom is our managing director and he is... His surname in English means what, Lyle? Uh, it means it like crackling electricity. Crackling energy. I mean, it, it means something loosely about lightning. Yeah, crackling energy yeah. or sparkling energy. He's going to kill me wow. for getting that wrong. But yeah, I mean, it yeah. literally means fiery energy, basically. I would love to have that surname. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're going to find a way around it, aren't they? They're going to start calling themselves like lightning, but in a different language. Do you know what I mean? That's how they're yeah. going to get around it. Um, yeah. And I couldn't pronounce it either. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I'm really interested. I mean, I'm intrigued by this as well. I mean, this idea that kind of, I mean, I think I think a question we asked in the briefing document is like, you know, and I spoke to you, but before we went live, before Jackie came into the meeting, Dad, you know, what wisdom have we lost in knowledge? You know, and then you said, oh, you know, what knowledge have we lost in information? And increasingly, I mean, like this idea of kind of the two things kind of being a marriage between the between one another. I mean, as I said before we went live, didn't I? Seemingly now everyone knows or is able to know everything. Whereas when you started out, that was never a thing. I mean, how has that affected and changed the way you work how how much has like the fact that information is just so readily available how has that changed the dichotomy and the relationship between ir and pr and how you work as well i mean how how has that altered things yeah i think i mean so you now if one accepts that pr and ir is a marriage um then what we're going through at the moment is one of what we call a rocky patch okay because uh, you know the historic relationship relied on very clear delineation of the audiences to whom you were addressing or to which you were addressing. Yeah. Uh, and now what's happening, of course, and I, I'm going to use GameStop here because it, it's, an, it's a, a reference point for pretty much everything that's going wrong in the world right now, with the possible exception of Sudan, because I understand they don't play games there. But I cut that out for serious, right? Because there's a lot of Sudanese cab drivers in Bedford. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, who are all obviously avid listeners. <laughs> the rest is PM. Uh, you told me this had a wide audience. Man. It, it, it right? does, okay. but I mean, I don't yeah, know if hey, they're going to be listening got, to it. This is, this is comedy gold, mate, seriously. And I've got, <laughs> where am I? But my point is that um, we, if one accepts a sort of marriage between a sort of a qualitative and a quantitative or a quantitative and a qualitative relationship between the two components of communications corporately to their various stakeholders, then one has a situation now where, you know, that is only going to be successful if that delineation persists mm. now when one gets to gamestop you have technically speaking the retail sector or re the retail investor um segment who typically and certainly in the uk this is true but typically don't have a voice i mean you'll, you'll hear about the share sock or the quoted companies alliance or whatever else it is in the uk but they are very much seen as people who turn up to the agm for the free tea and bickies all right. And they're not sort of, they're not BlackRock and they're not Citadel and they're not some aggressive hedge fund from Chicago. But I suppose the, 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 the leitmotif for the pandemic in investment market terms is GameStop. And that was driven by the retail market. And I think that was the watershed moment when it effectively dawned on both the equity market and, if you like, the traditional media or commentating audience. It suddenly dawned on them that every Joe Schmo out there has got not only a voice, but access to the world's biggest communication device ever known. Now, so, for example, I did a, a bit of analysis. I had a look at the FANGs, which are no longer the FANGs because they keep renaming themselves. But if, you know, we all know, I think, who the FANGs are. Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Netflix, and Google. And I had a look at the, the two price points against where they're currently trading now. And I put that in the context of GameStop. Now, um, the two price points I used was March the 20th, 2020, which is when the world came to a shuddering halt. And then I used the peak share price thereafter, which in very many cases occurred towards the, the middle of the third quarter in 21. And then I used the current share price. GameStop is up over 8,000%. I mean, there will be people, if they, if you bought on March the 20th, let me just see if I can get this out for you. If you bought on March the 20th, you paid 94 cents a share for GameStop. And at its peak through all of that crisis, you could have sold it for $81.25. Wow. An improvement of, I mean, and even I would struggle to make this sound bad, 8,544%. And that was obviously because everyone was shut indoors during the pandemic with not a lot else well, to do. Yes, but there was also a campaigning element about it, which I think has become very, it's, it's now become embedded in the DNA of comms, both public relations and investor relations. There was a campaigning element to it, and there was an us and them. So GameStop, who had not troubled anybody's particular agenda forever, was, as you know and still is, um, a store-based um, company with some uh, online outlet, but it was in gaming and effectively was the US version of Games Workshop or Game, but possibly less well-run. And as a function of everybody going online and effectively downloading games from the cloud or wherever it happens to be, you can probably tell I'm not technical, but um, you know, GameStop was effectively withering on the vine. And they had tried to prop up the company and its balance sheet had become fairly fragile. And its creditors, including some of its investors, just started to call in their, their loans and, and ask for their money back. At which point, every gamer who had, you know, a sofa macrame to his ass for the last six years suddenly got out, got up and started campaigning. Now, when I started doing this, that would have been a couple of letters to the editor and maybe a really quite interesting town hall meeting on a wet Tuesday evening in Rill. But now, all of a sudden, 
you've got I don't know how many people they just jump on this it becomes a thing it not only becomes a thing in terms of the noise online but the share price goes up by 8000%. So not only do you have the communications um, effect and there's a tangible nature to that but you can now put a financial value on that. Now if I go back to this analysis and forgive me this is sounding like something I last did to to BlackRock but my point is that GameStop currently trades at about 21 bucks. 21 bucks. Now it has collapsed. It's fallen by 74% from its peak. But GameStop is still worth 21 bucks. Now, I don't believe that it's done that much to its business. And in the space of two and a half years, it's gone from 94 cents to 21 bucks. That's extraordinary. All right. And I mean, if you go, it's just, if one looks at the fangs, a similar thing has happened. So Facebook rose by 151% trough to peak and has only fallen by 37% since that peak. Yeah. Uh, you know, Apple is up 213%. I mean, it's just an extraordinary set of numbers. Nothing has changed for them unless something fundamental has changed, and I've missed it. And I think we can spend a lot of time talking about that. But I, I'm firmly of the view that these companies and that tangible financial value has been created by communications. Mm. I mean, tangibly in the case of Apple, Amazon, uh, and to a lesser extent, Netflix, because they are about communications is what they do as a business. Yeah. But how their, their share prices have roared on the back of, you know, the world having, you know, a big deal to deal with and not come down back to that point suggests to me strongly that something fundamental has changed. I mean, this is intriguing, actually. This is, I mean, I suppose it's too, it's probably too difficult to ask what you think that is. But I mean, how, how do you kind of harness that in your position now as like sort of still working in that space? Because obviously, I mean, if, if you kind of see a tangible difference and evidence that there has been like a seismic shift in the industry... Mm. You as a professional working in that space, surely, and like colleagues of yours and people you work with have to go, well, hang on a minute. Something we've worked in for three decades. Sorry to date that and sort of show your age. Um, but, you know, something we've worked in the space, we've worked in for three decades. And we've kind of worked to try and affect change to this extent. Yeah. Something's happened in the last 18 months, two years. Obviously, a very big thing happened three years ago. But, you know, you can't, can't deny that. But, I mean, you must surely be now looking around going, how do we harness whatever this is? not ride this wave, but it must have com- like completely changed the landscape of your work as well, like and what you do. Yeah, to a very, I mean, to a very great extent, and thank you for that. I, I think it comes down to, and, and Jackie, you will know this, youthful though you are, you're a consummate PR professional. <laughs> but you have to know your audience. Point one, two, three, four, five in any campaign to communicate with any set of stakeholders. And what's been clear, I think, is the composition of the audience has changed and changed very quickly. And the means of communication intra-audience between mm. stakeholder groups has changed fundamentally and probably forever. So everyone has an opinion. And how you influence that opinion or how you shape that opinion as communicators has therefore got to change. And the principles of what we communicate, our messaging and everything else, I fundamentally believe stays the same to find those core messages, to find your principles, to make sure you know your mission, your values, your vision. That all has to say the same, but how we do it, I think is just I fundamentally I agree with changing. you entirely. And I think the, the core, to, to that point, I think the core here is it's about differential analysis. So, I mean, it's the second differential that we should be focusing on as communicators, not what we say, but what our audience thinks when we say it. Yeah. And what do they respond to? Yeah, and I think there is a third differential there, which is that who do they talk to once they've established their view? 
So if I say to my audience here, um, and forgive me, sucking the oxygen out of the room as ever, but my point is if I say um, it's raining in Bedford, okay, I could analyse that by thinking Lyle thinks, well, I'm not going up for the weekend. You may think, that's great, I live in Sussex. <laughs> but it's the same message in two very different and diametrically opposed interpretations, or indeed not just diametrically opposed, not even in the same Venn diagram. Yeah. And, and, and then Lyle goes away to his colossal number of followers on Twitter, and in, is it called Instagram? It is. Don't yeah. call it what you normally call it. It is. It's. It's called Instagram, and don't not on this. Right. <laughs> okay. I, I have. A, yeah. All right. But, but my point is that you know, Lyle is able to multiply his interpretation of my bald statement many, many times, as are you, Jackie. And yeah, I'm looking at, at two people who who will have different demographics in their audiences, who will have different timings in their audiences. And who will have that use that different interpretation to go into that? So communications used to be linear and to a very great extent bilateral. It is now a quadratic equation. I couldn't agree more. And I love the way that you brought in some high lofty speak, like differential analysis. But that is actually what we need to be doing. And we so need to be. And and so it's really interesting to me having this conversation with you, Scott, because in games marketing and mobile games marketing and it's just a product you know you could be talking about calculators or a cup or anything else but let's talk about the product of games in games marketing they're now talking about the sort of micro targeting so instead of trying to say hey everybody likes candy crush and playing this one very sort of mindless game they're now thinking, okay, well, we know the main people who like playing Candy Crush are 45 to 55-year-old women who have X amount of disposable income, who like to play bingo, do the gardening, do all this sort of thing, and then they micro-targeted it even more to gardening. And then within gardening, they can even micro-targeted it even further into patio gardening or landscape gardening. So what I'm saying is that there is this, this move towards micro-targeting of, and we're talking about performance marketing here, but the same kind of ethos, I feel, will start to run into our communications and how we communicate. Because those vehicles that are used for performance marketing can just as well be adapted to work with organic comms, like the, the kind of and comms I, that we I find this with. fascinating because, so, I mean, firstly, the, I mean, you, you, you speak of a fragmentation of market, of market um, and that's certainly happened in the investment market. Um, we don't have long enough for me to have a diatribe on hedge funds and how – I mean, just a quick point on hedge funds, by the way. You understand how hedge funds operate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the pension funds of which I talked with the 25, 30, 35-year time horizons, they are the facilitators of hedge funds. They lend their stock, which they don't need to buy or sell because they've got a 25-year time horizon. So they lend their stock to the hedge fund, who then goes and sells it. So I so you have large pension fund. I won't name any of them for fear of a lawsuit. But you have large hedge fund lends stock which they know they're not going to sell, that they're going to own through the through the the fund's life or through the, the the fund holder's life. But they lend it to aggressive hedge fund A, presumably to a whole lot of Americans with a middle initial and the third from Chicago. I mean, you know, the lake's <laughs> lovely, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Oh no! I mean, you know, Bryson, Bryson H. No offense to our, to, uh, you know, I'll, we don't I'll have a huge number of Sudanese listeners, I'm sure, but I'm sure we have a fair few American listeners, and we okay. love you all. 
I don't know. We'll stop naming your children the same names. We're going to run out of numbers. For God's sake. It's an numeric calculation. But my point is you've got, aggressive, you've got aggressive hedge funds who then sell the stock. And the thing is that the hedge funds in selling the stock, they don't want to get rid of the liability. They have no liability. They have no asset. They borrowed it. Their only purpose in transacting that stock is to force the price down. Right. Because at the, when the price falls, they can then go and buy the stock back and give it back to the lender. They've made tons of money, and the lender has earned a, a borrowing fee. And the liquidity of the market, as the London Stock Exchange always says, has been improved by the existence of hedge funds. Yeah. Right? But to that point, that very transaction is not buying or selling stock. I mean, it is in components. But it's a very complicated yeah. sort of transaction. But the ultimate outcome is a stock price falls. Now, to your point, Jackie, about the fragmentation, I think that there has to be a guiding hand, I mean, the invisible hand of Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. There is always going to be an invisible hand. I think it's quite small and belongs to Donald Trump. But the other matter is that there is, a, there is always going to be an invisible hand. I mean, Smith, Ricardo, um, all the way through to Keynes and Galbraith have not disproved the fact that the economy has some sort of invisible hand. Now, I'm not coming out all religious on a Friday morning, but economics is going to work that way. <clears throat> we don't shape economics. We simply adapt to how it works. And it's a sort of a mutually, I hope, beneficial relationship between humans and the economy, which they both build and, and work in. But to that point, we tend to fragmentation just before we go to consolidation. And the more we fragment until we get to the head of a pin and dancing therein, yeah, you will get to a point where the invisible hand will start to suggest that there is more value to be had by having less fragmentation rather than more. And that's a very circular, historical observation because that has happened over the decades over the centuries where you get the fragmentation then you get the consolidation and you see it in the digital world as well so you know we've now seen a fragmentation of media and one of my great predictions and I'm hoping it does come true is there will be a consolidation of all of those sort of fragmented me media vehicles just like in the games industry sort of I, I do use the games industry a lot because I have a lot of clients there but you see right now that the games industry is super consolidating because everybody's buying, everybody's buying everyone else. Every studio is being bought up. The Sega's bought Rovio. They're all, you know, now consolidating. And, and you know, you do see that historically happen. Absolutely. We, we tend, we, there, economies tend to oligopoly. And the only thing that stops that is the inverse of the invisible hand, the very obvious public hand of regulation. So mm -hmm. Microsoft Activision right now. I mean, yeah. the UK is effectively saying, look, we've seen a lot of consolidation in, in this market. And again, the government point here is not, there, not an economic principle. There is, I think, very strong logic to a consolidation in that, in that market because the cost of game development, marketing, and actually getting the stuff into people's hands is just growing exponentially. And paradox, not, not paradoxically, it's not a surprise that we see greater consolidation in a period of inflation. No. So bigger balance sheets, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the very public hand 
trying to stop the invisible hand is government regulation. You, obviously, you've seen the CMA say that Activision can't go to Microsoft. This was Eric, um, who I've mentioned earlier in the pod. This was Eric's big sort of... I mean, he's delighted that everything he's saying has come true. But I, I totally agreed with him because I think he was 100% right. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think to that point, I mean, we will necessarily consolidate Microsoft Activision. I think we will consolidate um, in, in media terms as well because commentary, while everybody has a view, I think people are increasingly thinking the Wild West is not where we should have views. So you have, I mean, if if only Nixon could go to China, I think only Trump could go on CNN and say it was all stolen. You know, and 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 I think you come to a point where the paradoxes are just too stark. Trump on CNN is probably, and I would, I would go on record. Trump on CNN is where the media suddenly turns around and goes, right, there's a, this is enough. We have to go back. Um, because I mean, I used to do some work for Johnson Press, right? Which owned I don't know how many titles across the UK, and it could make a buck, right? And I thought that when it went out, or when it started to have some serious problems, that was when the UK media was going to wake up and think, you know, what we need to do this differently. But I think the UK has an, an uncertain relationship with its media because we we love our fourth estate and we count it as one of the pillars of our democracy, and we also count it as one of our great sort of success stories. Despite the fact if you go, you know, two layers down, you'll find that nobody in the UK actually owns any of the media. Any of our media, yeah. You know, <laughs> News International being a somewhat uninteresting <laughs> and murky economic structure. And the Trinity Mirror Group is a long-term, you know, dream that once was. By the way, just on that, um, when Mirror Group newspapers, MGN, used to be a listed company, I sat next to the guy who wrote that. Oh, really? Do you know this? Derek Terrington at UBS Phillips and Drew, stockbrokers to the gentry, wrote, a, wrote a, a research note on MGN. His title was Can't Recommend a Purchase. There's an acronym in that sentence. Yes, I can. There <laughs> certainly is. Am I allowed to go there? No. Okay. Yes. Anyway, anyway. Yeah, yeah we, we can't recommend a purchase. The acronym is crap, right? Yeah. And it turns out that Robert Maxwell had a ton of cash at Union Bank of Switzerland, or UBS as we knew them. Um, and he phoned up, well, the head of equities, who phoned up the head of research, who phoned up Derek. Um, and, and Derek had to leave. <laughs> um, that was a sort of watershed as well. But I mean, the other point is Mirror Group newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. We need to have ownership of the media where we have an editorial function. You know, I mean, I. It's great to be on this, and I, I, I obviously love talking. I've sucked the air out of the room again. But the point is there needs to be – and then, they go, of course, my son will then go away and edit it down to 30 seconds of me going, blah. Right? <laughs> um, there we go. But I think that's, that soundbite that there is what we're, we're going to use to promote this episode. You going, blah. That's what we're going to okay. use to promote right. this. I'm, I'm going to do, I'm, I'm do this. Mont de de Honk. You can say that because I knew your father. You can have 10 points. <laughs> um, but my point is that there needs to be an editorial function, and we don't have it. So true. Uh, we used to have it and it used to be glorious. I do hope, and I have seen, you know, just are we talking in cycles? You know, I do believe that the thought leaders and the opinion leaders will start again to rise to the top, that there will be, a, especially with AI now yeah. affecting our media so much to the extent that, you know, a really good friend of mine, a guy called Simon Rotman, who is a very well known tech journalist and He's founded What Mobile magazine and all sorts of different magazines. Yeah. He ran a prompt to ChatGPT to say, write my biography for me. And it came back with the most insane biography. Some of it was wrong, 
but it was actually a really good bio. It was surprisingly good. And so I do think that, you know, as as AI and generative AI particularly starts to affect the content and, and the media that's written, because journalists, uh, Piers Morgan called them lazy. I don't agree with that. But journalists have a really tough time. They're working into a 24-hour agenda they're not paid very much. They're certainly not paid for their opinions. They're paid to report. And ChatGPT could, by some, be seen to be quite a godsend when they just need to rattle out a few bits of commentary about this, that, and the other. So with all that happening, and there's no doubt in my mind that journalists will take advantage of that, the thought leaders, so I've taken a long way round to say this, I believe the true thought leaders and the true opinion shapers and the people who have time and money to think about the information they're getting will rise to the top in terms of influence. And my therefore belief is that those people will be the people we need to be thinking about targeting and speaking to and getting our organisations' messages across. And then for all the rest, I'm afraid a lot of PRs are going to turn into prompt engineers and they're going to become the, you know, that wave of content generation, which is necessary for research and everything else. Well, I think that's right. I mean, the well. thing is, when we when I sat in the, you know, the, the august and mighty tower of financial dynamic or Citygate, I went to the Middle East and worked with Burson Marstella for example there was very much a thing that there was balloons and t-shirts and there was financial pr right <laughs> but whenever we got to the end of the month balloons and t-shirts was making way more money and its margins were way higher than this august body of experts opining that no 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 i think you need to talk to samuels at the financial times he's got a far better idea of economic value added <laughs> anyway, right, economic value added was a made-up piece of stuff in the first place <laughs> and we disappeared up our own stuff <laughs> for about 10 years trying to work out how stuff happened when eva didn't allow us to predict it the guy who really liked it was a guy called okay i won't name him but he ended up being the finance director of credit suisse so, so okay great so you won't name him but anyone with google can go and look but seriously trust me on this credit suisse have had a, and a number of finance directors in the last five years I think that might have been one of their problems. But anyway, he, he was one of the finance directors they've had in the last five years. I sat next to him when I was at, I was at BZW, which became Credit Suisse. He loved economic value um, at EVA, right? which is nonsense for the record listeners and viewers. Utter nonsense. <laughs> anyway, he loved it. And he, he, he went up the, the very high. And I got ahead on it to go to ABN AMRO. The rest is history. But the point is, we can go down rabbit holes. We can go down routes of direction of travel which all seemed great at the time and i get the chat gpt and i get this idea of ai generating commentary because hey my phone is cleverer than me so why don't we use some of those do we still have mainframes uh no i don't okay. have mainframes we do have we have server banks basically i mean you know this has probably got more more computing power than the old mainframes used to have Right. So to that point, we have more computing power, which I, I necessarily mean is, is ones and zeros going through a, a fairly significant thought tree at a, a rate of knots. Fine. But what, again, to, to maybe to sort of get to the, the end of this, uh, is what knowledge have we lost in that information? What knowledge, what sense have we lost in the speed? Because when it comes down to um, communications, Jackie, as I'm sure you know, there is a very strong argument for touch and feel. We have multifarious audiences. I mean, I sit in investor relations for a listed company. I've got guys calling me from the golf course about the share price, and I'm trying to punt the idea to Richard Fletcher at the Times. I've also got 
pension funds who are probably lending the stock to hedge funds and i've got hedge funds calling me and asking me when the share price is going to next go down i'm 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 exaggerating to make a point but there are very many people that one has to talk to from where i sit they all have one principal purpose in life which is to make money but again that differential analysis the hedge fund is the is the most honest of my audiences because they're naked capitalists yeah but I have retail punters who are asking about the health of the business and whether the chief executives had a good breakfast. They only want the share price to go up. And with the greatest respect to, to Fletch, and I've known him for years, he wants to sell newspapers, regardless of which platform he does, print, online, whatever. But everybody wants to make money. And I think it's just a question of how much they hide that, which should determine how you interact with them as an audience. I'm not for a minute suggesting you be nasty to everybody, but if you go into a conversation knowing what the other person wants, I'm fairly certain you can have you've got you brought a gun to a knife fight rather than the other way around. Yeah, this has been in fairness Awful. to you, Dad. No, in, Dad, in fairness, this has been very good. You behave yourself. You're very <laughs> insightful. You, obviously, I knew you'd be very knowledgeable, and I've actually had a brilliant time. And it's been very interesting to kind of hear your insight. And I think you know, actually. I think there's been some really interesting things as well in terms of like not just your own career and like the, the, the industry you work in and the sort of specifics of the PR and comms industry you've worked in, but also just like where things are moving to. Do you know what I mean? Like how, how things are evolving and everyone at any stage in their career is having to adapt to how the industry is changing, new technologies. The key takeaway for me is actually very proud of you, right? That sentence, what sense have we lost in speed is magic. I, 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 I agree with that. I think it's, it's only because I'm no longer that quick across the ground. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm only interested in money as well. Um, and, you know, but it's all about comparative advantage. But I mean, well, thank you very much for that. Dad, thank you for coming on the podcast and for being such a brilliant guest. And, was for, and, and it's, it's been great to have you on. And actually, um, I was nervous. No, I wasn't. I'm joking. But I'm glad I'm, I'm, you, you've been brilliant. A few quick T's and C's, listeners, before uh, ask my dad. For those watching on video, you'll see my dad's looking at me quizzically. Um, but uh, a few T's and C's, as we always do, listeners, before we finish. I won't point to anything my dad's involved in because he's involved in lots of things that he's just mentioned in the podcast. And we'll link all those things in the episode description. And, and you can obviously go and check out what my dad does. He, he was on LinkedIn for a while and wrote some really interesting things. And just go and look my dad up because he's great. And I'm bound to say that because I'm biased, but he is great. Um, but if you are interested, as I hope you are, as we hope you are in the podcast, then you can email us if you want to be on the podcast or if you have something you'd like us to discuss. It's info at therestispr.com. And you can also go to therestispr.com for more information on the podcast. You can also email info at demozo.com. Get to us that way. And obviously, if you want to check out what Demozo have been up to, and you absolutely should because there's lots of really exciting things coming up for Demozo, then head to demozo.com. As ever, you can also Get in touch with us, Jackie or myself, via LinkedIn. And also give us a follow at The Rest is PR on Twitter, capital T, capital R, capital I, capital PR really is as simple as that. Jackie, same time next week. What do you reckon? Yeah, definitely. We've got a fantastic guest listeners coming up next week. I'm really, really excited as well. We've guests coming thick and fast, which is brilliant. And um, they're going to be coming from Japan. So we're having to time it fairly interestingly. So really the excited band. for them. J- Japan. Not oh, the right, band. the country. <laughs> yeah, no, they, not they're coming from let's the band. The, let's hope the, the Wi-Fi works better than Naples. <laughs> That's oh, it, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah the Japanese. <laughs> Yorishiko Negoshimasu. Hey. There you go. See, hey, his, his, his skill set knows no bounds, and that's why I'm cutting him off right now. Um, <laughs> Could I just have one plug for my upcoming book? It's called <laughs> Greatest Hits Volume 2. For publicity reasons, um, it'll be in a drop near you. <laughs> <laughs> 
my dad, ladies and gentlemen, it really has been glorious. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm being genuine. I actually has been fantastic. But listeners, thank you so much for listening to the latest episode of The Rest is PR. From Jackie, my dad and me. We'll see you next week, but it's bye for now.